Thank you for listening to sermons from South City Church. Our mission as a church is to demonstrate God's greatness by advancing a gospel that transforms people into fully devoted followers of Jesus. For more information on South City Church, please visit us at southcitymke.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash southcitymke. So we're in 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, part two this week. 1 Peter 2, 13-17. And we asked this question starting last week. Um, really just cut it in half because there's a lot in this, in this passage. Just wanting to split it in half for more manageable sections per Sunday in terms of time. But we asked this question. We've been coming throughout the book. There's been these themes of that were sojourners and strangers. Implication that we're citizens of a different kingdom. And then we come to this passage that talks about the state. And the question is then, how, how do we relate to the state as Christians? Particularly, how do we relate to the state as sojourners, this theme that Peter has, as citizens of a different kingdom? Or we could put it this way, because the reason we're sojourners is because of the gospel, the reason is because of our identity in Christ and that we're saved people, what sort of implications does the gospel have for how we relate to the state? How do we as Christians relate to the state? And this is part two. And then, of course, the the sort of the framework, the, the conceptual ideas that lead to this sort of question in this way is this. That is, if Jesus is Lord... And if we, and Peter's hearers too, are part of a different kingdom, citizens of heaven, or a distinct holy nation, as Peter said, sojourners, then how should we view our involvement in the earthly kingdoms and nations? If I'm part of a different nation, the spiritual nation, what do I have to do with the nation of America, for example? Or fill in the blank. Must I obey them? If I'm a citizenship out, citizen of another kingdom, can I just disregard them? And that's the, that's the sort of framework at which uh, Peter's question, Peter's subject matter makes sense. And his answer is that we are to be subject. We are to submit. In verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake. And we unpacked a little bit of what this looks like, teased out some of the implications and applications we talked about um, potential exceptions. Is this an absolute rule? Submit in all cases, no matter what. Um, and then we also talked about the framework that Peter has in verse 16, that we're to live as people, he says, live as people who are free, that we're ultimately free, that we're not bound to some earthly, temporary nature that will be a footnote on the pages of history, um, that we're a part of an eternal kingdom. That's our ultimate identity. We're free that our ultimate Lord is not an earthly one. It's not a president who sits in the Oval Office, but it's Christ. Nonetheless, we're free slaves of God. And as slaves of God, as people who are called to serve God because of the gospel, we have a unique calling then in our own earthly citizenship to obey and to submit to government. And so that's the framework at which we come to a text like this. And today what I want us to do, as we've looked at sort of the nature of that command, the exceptions, the framework of it, and 
and some of the applications. Today, what I want to do is spend some time on the two reasons that he gives, the two motivations, why, why we are to obey and submit to government. But let's begin by reading chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Peter says this, he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Let's pray as we ask God for his grace as we look into this text. God, we need your grace every Sunday, this Sunday included, to to understand what your text, what your scripture is speaking to us, not just on an intellectual level, but in a way where we see your glory, we see your greatness, we see your supremacy, and we apprehend what you are telling us in terms of letting it seep down into our lives, that we walk away as people who are more fully devoted followers of Jesus. That it's only by your Spirit, as Paul says in in his letter to the Corinthians, it's only by your spirit that we can discern these things. And so we plead for your grace, we plead for your mercy, and we trust for your, for your illuminating work this morning. Make us a people who, is, who are more and more into, in submission to your authoritative word as we look at it this morning. And help us to think deeply about what this will look like for our own lives now here um, in this contemporary setting. Amen. So I want to look at the reasons, and I want to begin, first of all, by noting a little phrase that introduces it all. So if you look at verse 13, Peter says, be subject for the Lord's sake. That little phrase, for the Lord's sake. And this, this sets the tone for then everything. Everything in terms of the reasoning of why we submit. The reason I think this is important is because if we started, if we had a discussion, we could, we could throw around a lot of different ideas of why we should submit to government. There's a lot of reasons out there, and they're not necessarily bad in themselves. Okay, why do we submit to government? We can think of things like our national interest. Like for the, for the good of our nation, we need to have people who are submitting to the government. So we don't have social chaos, okay? Or civic duty, we might think, you know, I have an obligation. We're taught civic duty. Self-preservation even. Like as a church, we don't want to be persecuted, so it's more beneficial to submit and not cause a ruckus. Okay, so it's it's better, it it means a better life. Like just, you know, live a quiet life. Don't, Don't cause a big fuss. You get into less trouble. So we can think of a lot of reasons why we would submit to government. But Peter is specifically saying that we submit for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake, okay? So there's a lot of reasons. The reason I bring this up is because I can imagine that it's easy if we kind of come at this text apart from its context and we just kind of pull out the imperative to submit, we can end up importing a lot of other reasons that may not actually be bad, but are not what Peter is after here. Peter, his point, 
is that we do it for the Lord's sake. In other words, there's a Godward aim to our submission. There's a Godward intention to why we are to submit. It's for God. In other words, it has to do with our, uniquely, it has to do with our Christian calling. That we are, because it's for God, because it's uniquely as Christians, there's a unique reason that we submit that no one else is going to have that re- that same sort of reason. It's the implication of the fact that we are slaves, that we're free, but we're not using our freedom for a cover-up for evil, as verse 16 says, but as servants of God. And so we have to come to this text understanding that it's these unique reasons. It's not because we're patriots. It's not because uh, we, whatever, fill in the blank it might be, national interests. Not that any of those things are necessarily bad, but that's not what Peter is after. That's not his emphasis here. It's first and foremost because we are Christians. And the implications that that has for our relationship to the state. The first reason he gives is because of the goodness of government. Because of the goodness of government. We'll look at two reasons. The first is the goodness of government. Look at verses 13 and 14. Okay, and it's particularly the end of verse 14. But be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Okay, these institutions of authority, whether it's to the governor, or sorry, the emperor as supreme, or the governor as sent by him, notice this, to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. The government and these officials punish those who do evil, praise those who do good. And if we looked at Romans 13, which we read last week, it says a similar thing, that one of the reasons we submit to government is because government, generally speaking, is something that promotes the welfare of people. It, 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 it is a deterrent against evil, criminality, um, malicious, violent behavior, and it is a promotion, generally speaking, of those things that are virtuous and those things that are good, those things that are beneficial. And of course, this is not always the case. Okay, We have to note the exceptions. Um, I think of like feminist theology as an example of a caution here. If feminist theology, without getting into all the details of it, if one thing that it's taught us that is good is that is parts of the Bible can be used abusively. Um, parts of the Bible can be used to promote things that are not right. And the same thing can be had when it comes to texts like this with the government. Um, texts in the Bible that are good and they are right, sometimes they can be misconstrued and they can be used to promote things that are not right. And so this is not always the case. And we wouldn't want to use this text to hold it over people and to beat people over the head with it um, who are in um, oppressive government regimes and just use it as a way, like you could see governments using something like this as basically an excuse to do horrible things to their people. Sort of, we have a blank check. So, of course, we need to note there's exceptions. This is not absolute. Peter knows this, of course. He lives under the Roman government that will eventually kill him. It's a a government that, under certain emperors, suppressed Christianity, even persecuted Christianity. But as a general rule, we know this is true. We can think about it, okay? Think of, like, anarchy, like, just try to put yourself in that position. We've, all, we've grown up in America. We've never had the, I mean, except the government shuts down. That's about as bad as it gets in terms of lack of government. We've never had a, an actual lack of government, though. Like, all of a sudden, the police officers no longer exist, and our authorities no longer exist. But think about how terrifying that would be if 
there were no structures along those lines. If it really, like whoever was the strongest people, whoever had the most power, the most weapons, whatever it might be, could just do whatever they wanted, unrestrained, without check. That would be absolutely terrifying. Um, we can think of maybe like similar examples of this where you have like mob rule, like I think of like the southern lynchings. Just imagine being um, someone who, an African American in the, in the, back in the old days of the south where you crossed someone the wrong way, they didn't like what you did or for something or another and all of a sudden you got, you're on the list to be lynched and the, gover the, the authorities turn a blind eye and you're getting hung up on a tree. Like, just think about how terrifying that would be. Like, there is no law and you're just done because it's mob rule. Okay, we think of natural disasters where at times when like a hurricane comes in and all of a sudden there's rioting and there's looting and like the loss of government control, people take advantage of it and they do horrible things. Or a more trivial example, if you're into like zombie movies, you can think of all of a sudden everyone's dead and you get zombies everywhere, the government's gone, and everyone's pulling out shotguns and killing each other and it's just crazy mayhem, okay? Or the book of Judges. The book of Judges has this refrain that there was no king, there was no king, and then after that phrase, that the fact that there's no king, it says this, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The point is like, you lose that God instituted government that restrains evil, and it's, you start to, when you start to really think about that, you start to really appreciate what government is. And there's, there's three sort of responses I think that we have as an application of this. The first is, is thankfulness. That we should be, when we start to realize how, gra how gracious of a thing it is that God has given, we've fallen into sin, and then God has given us sort of a partial remedy, not, not an ultimate remedy, but something that will restrain evil. That God has given us government. We start to be incredibly thankful for God for that. And I think oftentimes we take it for granted. We, we just assume it. But how terrifying would it be to live in a world where sin, like think of, think of post-flood or pre-flood. Okay, a lot of people bring the institution of government sort of after the flood where God gives uh, Abraham or Noah some laws and such. Um, Pre-flood, everyone's just going crazy and killing each other and all this stuff. It's terrifying. And so when God gives us government, we should be a people that are thankful for it, even when it's not perfect, even when, it's, when there are exceptions. We should be thankful for our governing officials. We should be thankful for our police officers. Um, it doesn't mean that, like, as we have debates right now over the criminal justice system, it doesn't mean we don't engage and, and wonder if we can improve upon things, but we're nonetheless thankful for our police officers. We're, we're thankful for our justice system. We're thankful in our country that we have a court system that at least in principle is, is trying to bring about justice, even if there are room for improvement. The second is that, we, is that then we submit to government, which is what Peter is saying here, that if government, generally speaking, promotes good and suppresses evil, government is something that we are to submit to. It makes sense. It makes sense. It gives, it gives rationale to why Peter says to submit. Because generally speaking, it's going to promote good. So it's something we submit to. 
And that way we have this sort of theological orientation, finally, for the third thing here is that that we view, our, our, our view of government, is that we view governments as, as these divinely instituted things for good. How does that shape our view of government? Okay, on the one hand, we have theological reason, reason to be suspicious of government. That's why one of the reasons people give for the explanation of checks and balances in our country and sort of a, an awareness of a theology of sin, that we need checks because, as Lord Acton said, as I said it last week, Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And so we create these checks and these balances and we have a suspicion of government. But I think sometimes we as Christians in America can tend to be far too negative to government. We can be far too negative. We can have a, a, a we can berate the government. Like it, we just rip into the government like it's this horrible thing. We're completely ungrateful when we do that. We have a hyper suspicion. We're Super disdaining. Ronald Reagan has this famous quote where he says, um, he said, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Now, he probably said that in the context of promoting a certain like economic strategy, and I'm not making a comment on that. So that statement we can leave to stand on its own. But I think... If we mean, if we were to pick up a quote like that and say that in terms of our attitude to the government, that's an unchristian attitude. That government is a problem. Like, regardless of the whole debate over the private sector and the government sector, I'm not talking about that. But as Christians, governments are something to be thankful for. And we should be, we should actively be thankful for governments, and how we speak of them, how we think of them should reflect that. So that's the first reason he gives to submit to governments. Our theology of government as something that is what we would call God's common grace. A grace that he gives to all people is the institution of governments to restrain evil. The second reason is our Christian witness. Our Christian witness, our Christian testimony. Verse 15 He says, for this is the will of God. Okay, what's God's will? What would God desire? That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Okay, why do we submit? Because it's God's will that we would put, that we would shut up ignorance by doing good. When we think of this ignorance, what is this ignorance? Well, in the early church, there was a lot of things that the church, that there was misunderstanding. There was a lot of ignorance that people had of the early, of the early Christians. For example, they were accused of being cannibals. They were accused of being cannibals because they ate the bread and the wine, the, which was designated Christ's body and blood. And so people were like, you're eating a guy. Whenever you get together, you eat this dude. Like, what's that all about? Or we can think of the accusation that they committed incest because throughout the New Testament we see them referring to each other as brothers and sisters, and they love one another, and people would say, oh, well, you guys are, you know, think the worst of that. Or we think of uh, the accusation that they were atheists, oddly enough, that they, Christians were accused of being atheists because they rejected the Roman gods. You rejected the gods. Like, in the, in the cultural world where polytheism is an assumption, like, worship your god along with all the other ones, but the fact that you reject all these gods, you must be atheists which was not commonly accepted back then, as it is now. Um, or, there was the accusation that Christians are a threat to the empire. 
Christians are a threat to the empire. Why? One, because they reject the gods who are, are overseeing the Roman Empire's welfare, it was believed. You reject the Roman gods, you're rejecting the empire's gods. How are they going to like us when you do that? They're not. They're not going to protect us as well. And Christians refuse to um, participate in the military um, because of their convictions. So they refuse to participate in the military, and then their accusation is, well, you're not good citizens. You don't participate in the military, you won't fight for us. And Christians had to defend themselves. And there was actually, I can't remember who the author was off the top of my head right now, but there's actually a, a book by an early Christian written specifically against these sort of accusations, especially the military one. Okay? In this context, the ignorance is probably the fact that they were seen as revolutionaries. They, you know, Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I am Lord. I am Lord. The same language that was used by Caesar. Okay, well, and then he's accused. He's, he, what is he? He's, when he's crucified, they crucify him and the Jews say, this guy is saying he's Lord. How can you, no, friend, no, one, no one who wouldn't handle this guy is, can say that they're a friend of the Caesar. And so Jesus is killed and they put over his head, king of the Jews. So there's, this, there's sort of this suspicion. Are these Christians revolutionaries? This messianic figure, there's a lot of messiahs that would try to start revolts. People are suspicious of Christians. They use kingdom of God language, which for a lot of people had military violent sort of connotations. And so one of the aspects of ignorance might be that these people are revolutionary, that they're revolters, that they're violent. And what does Peter then say? Well, how do you calm this sort of ignorance? You submit to government. You be just, not, you be just the opposite of that. You submit. You live a quiet life. So we think of that theme throughout the New Testament of living quiet, peaceable, undisruptive lives. Like, like 1 Thessalonians 4.11 is just an example of this. Paul says, to aspire to live quietly. That as Christians, there's a sense in which we are undisruptive. There's another sense in which we're absolutely disruptive, that we are subversive. We are revolutionaries, in a sense. That we're citizens of an inbreaking kingdom that, that has values and convictions and, and saving realities that confront our social order. But it's a little bit more convoluted than that because we're good citizens at the same time and our, our revolution is not one of overthrowing the government. Our kingdom, as Jesus said to Pilate, when questioned on these matters, is not of this world. It's not something that uses that fits the world's categories and uses the world's means. We can think of the ignorance that people have of Christianity today. Just start to think of the sort of misconceptions that people have. Even this week when I was at work, one of my good friends who's a Christian came and spoke to me that he was quite frustrated because uh, one of he was having a conversation with another coworker who had all these misunderstandings of the church and was saying very belittling things about Christians, and he just found it very disheartening. So we talked about it a little bit. But we can think about a whole bunch of bunch of these areas, okay? Like Christians are homophobic and they and they hate gay people. Okay, or Christians think that slavery is good and that they're all about that. Okay, or, or, or Christianity is a Western European white man's religion. That Christianity teaches women are inferior. 
Okay, Christians are just trying to establish a theocracy in America. They're trying to just take everything over. And that one, like I know that might seem ridiculous because there's actual people who believe that. That they believe that Christians are secretly trying to turn America into a theocracy. Or that we're intolerant because we disagree with people, even though Christians have been at the forefront of establishing tolerance and religious liberty. Okay, that Christians only care about the afterlife that we don't care about the present world, that Christians are anti-intellectual, that we're anti-science, that, that we're only after people's money. We just want to get people's money, that, that Christianity is just a way of controlling people. That Christianity is, is just about being a good person. It's just about moral improvement. And that we think we're better than everyone else because we claim exclusivity in Christ. Okay, we can think of these things that we've probably heard, these things that we encounter, these sort of ignorance, ignorances. So that's the context. How does Peter then say we are to respond to such ignorance? Look at verse 15. How do we respond to such ignorance? For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Notice, it's, it's not the response of hostility and anger. Okay? I think a lot of times when we start to get uh, attacked or we hear things said, our initial response is to just get really mad and we just lash out at people. You see this happen at, on social media all the time. Okay? And a lot of that is because we're prideful. You start, you start to say these things and we feel... Our pride is knocked down. We feel that our intellect is, is being assaulted, that our sense of, uh, sense of worth is being assaulted. And so we lash out out of a sinful self of pro- sense of pride. Or the other thing that Peter notice says is he says, he says, okay, by, by doing good, notice he doesn't say that we silence people's ignorance by apologetics or by explaining ourselves. No, 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 that's not what we believe. That's not what we believe. We believe this instead. Of course, Peter is not against that. Um, Peter will talk about giving reason for the hope that's in us. And we can see Paul defending the faith and all those things in the book of Acts. So that's not, of course, Peter's not against that. But I think that's interesting. Notice how interesting that is. That's, that's not what Peter goes to. Even though that's a good thing, that's not where he goes here. That his, his tact isn't to say, like, Okay, let's clarify. You misunderstand? Let me clarify. Good, but that's not where he goes. Where does he go? What is Peter's primary route of diffusing people's ignorance? Doing good. That by doing good, you silence the ignorance. Or look at verse 12 that that Drew preached. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers... Like, it's not going to hold up. They may see your good deeds and glorify God. Like, how do you shut people up when they have misconceptions, when they have assaults, when they have accusations? The thing where Peter goes here is to do good. Our actions diffuse their accusations. And of course, again, here's another thing. There's going to be exceptions. We could be, we could be outstanding um, in terms of our, our in terms of our good works, and people are at the end of the day still going to accuse us. Like it's not this isn't a guarantee of everything's going to be fine and dandy. But it nonetheless is that we can see the worth here. Our actions diffuse their accusations. That what if the church was so respected for good works 
so respected for being people of honor and dignity that folks just had a really hard time bringing themselves to condemn us. Like it's, even if they disagreed with us on certain hot topic issues, that you just, you just really like, man, they're just so respectable. I just respect so much of what they do in these certain, in these areas. They, they're so loving. They're so kind. They take care of people. I just can't bring myself to, even if I disagree, I just have a hard time really viewing them with disdain. In other words, like Christ. I mean, people, people accuse Christ and people are, People say things about Christ. But generally speaking, I think a lot of people, even if they're not Christians, like Christ is someone that, generally speaking, people respect. Um, no one wants to be the person that hates on Jesus. Like, that's just not... Like, he's just an like he's just a absolutely impeccable person. And obviously, from our standpoint, we have theological reason for that. But most people recognize, like, you just can't really get a hold on much when it comes to Jesus. He's not someone you want to find yourself criticizing. And so he's our model. What if we were like Jesus in that respect then? Of course, all of this implies a certain social engagement. Like, one of the implications here is that if we're going to do good deeds that then diffuse people's accusations, the assumption is that these are good deeds that people can see. Like, this implies Christians are involved in the social sphere doing good deeds. And one of the things that happened at this time is that there was actually people who would, like, donate money to causes and such. And that might be what Peter has in mind here, of the rich, specifically the rich Christians. But as Christians, what are we doing in our community? Um, Not wholly huddle, but actually going out into our community and doing these sort of good deeds such that their accusations are diffused. I think of Jeremiah 29.7, where Jeremiah says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Or as Matthew in chapter 6, I believe, he says, it's that they may see your good deeds, that these are visible things. The other implication is this, that nothing that Peter says here, when he talks about our good deeds and our virtue and our character and our ethics, in terms of how we relate to society. Nothing he says here excludes political impact for good. Okay, We live in a democracy and Christians have an ability to influence the political realm, to engage themselves in politics, and nothing that he's saying here is against that in principle, on its own terms. But, but here's the thing, here's the implication. To do so, okay, to try to win political battles for the sake of certain perceived political gains at the expense of our ethics, at the expense of our Christian witness, would seem to violate what Peter is saying here. Okay, I want us to get this. Peter's emphasis is on our character. It's on how we act. It's on our Christian witness. And this has implications then for how we engage politics as we think about how we relate to the state. This is precisely the trap that large swaths of evangelicalism seem to have fallen into in the past election. Okay, They found themselves defending and excusing, at worst, affirming immorality for the sake of perceived political gains, gains, a perceived greater good or a lesser evil. 
That we want to have our political influence, so we're going to, we're going to find ourselves defending and affirming and supporting things that are not, that don't line up with Christian ethics. The things that Peter is actually focusing on here. As Peter taps into here, though, one of the chief means by which the church actually influences society for good is by living as a community that by our lives, by doing good, it testifies and witnesses to God's way. By being salt and light, as Jesus said. And it's not an accident that those words, that we are to be salt and light, come to us in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus lays out this countercultural way of living that flows out of the gospel and its kingdom. The point is that as we embody Christ's kingdom ethics, as we bear out the implications of the gospel in our lives, as we are this radically bizarre countercultural community as a church, this is how we serve as salt and light. This is how we are to impact our society. Not through ethical compromise, but by ethical integrity, ethical witness. But if this salt has lost its saltiness, as Christ says, if we compromise our ethics, no matter what sort of political, perceived political gains we may feel like we can achieve in the process, we lose our witness. And it is this witness, this testimony to a different way that is our influence, not political power plays. For what will it profit the church if she gains the whole political world but loses her ethical soul, we can imagine Christ saying. And so just some reflections as we think about what is the way that we are to influence society. How do we how do we interact with people as they have ignorance and they make accusations? It's to be outstanding citizens. We come back to that theme of submission. That the two, reason, the two primary reasons he gives for submission is on the one hand because of the goodness of government and number two, because as being outstanding citizens, by submitting, by doing good in our society, we diffuse people's accusations. We bolster our gospel witness. And all of this again, this comes back to the gospel. It comes back to our distinct identity. That as Christ has redeemed us by bearing our curse, by bearing our sins, as Peter says, in himself, he removes our sin from us so that when we trust in him, we are justified. Our sins are forgiven. We stand before God as, as having our sins removed, as standing before God as righteous in his judgment. And it is this gospel that gives us the distinct identity out of which these applications flow. That we're, as Peter says, we're sojourners, we're slaves. Our ultimate identity is in Christ's cross and in his kingdom. We're a people on mission. We're people who have submitted to Christ's lordship. And it's out of this identity, it's out of this calling that flow the implications for how we relate to this state. And so as we close, we come to the Lord's Supper. And I want to remind us again of the passage we reflected on last week, Matthew 26. Matthew 26. Passage where Christ institutes the Lord's Supper. And this, this passage reminds us both of what the Supper means in terms of the elements and their symbolism and the promises that back those symbols. And also, as we look at those symbols, 
We're reminded of our citizenship, and we're reminded of our calling, we're reminded of our mission. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then, crucial here, verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That the Lord's Supper here, Christ tells us, it's a picture of his death. It's a picture of his death that that bore our sins, that transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's marvelous light, into this inbreaking kingdom where we experience salvation, we experience renewal, we experience restoration. And then the Lord's Supper, it's a foretaste then of the ultimate experience of that kingdom, where we, we, we begin to experience now the kingdom in its inbreaking sense, but we await, as Christ says, that he will not drink of it again until he, he, he drinks of it with us in the new kingdom. So it's a foretaste of that ultimate, that ultimate supper of the Lamb, that ultimate banquet. This is just a, a sample, an appetizer to the ultimate banquet. And so as we celebrate it, as we're reminded of the gospel, Christ bearing our sin, dying in our place for all who trust in him, we're reminded of the gospel, we're reminded of our kingdom identity, and we're reminded of our kingdom calling that flows out of it.